welcome to the Move Daily Health Podcast, where we share information to empower you to be your own health hero. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Move Daily Health Podcast. I'm Dane Wallace, here again with Freya Spence, and today the two of us are going to talk about sleep. Freya recently wrote an article that is on our blog, and we will link it into the show notes, called Hypermobility Type Ehlers-Danlos Overcoming Insomnia. So before we get into the nuts and bolts of the said article, I just want to turn it over to Frey here to just chat a little bit about her story with sleep. All right. Well, part of the reason I wrote this article or decided to write this article was because I find that a lot of people in our current day and age, whether they have EDS or not, do suffer from periods of poor sleep. To some extent, some of us normalize it when we take on really busy lives and many people wind up frustrated with it because it exacerbates all other health challenges, we'll say, whether it's sickness, whether it's injury. If we're not sleeping, we're not recovering. So the article was written to hopefully help anybody who struggles with sleep issues, whether they have EDS or not, by using natural solutions. What this does mean is it may take some trial and error, a little bit of creativity, and especially will take a little bit of time. It's not a sleeping med. We are not physicians here, so we're not recommending that. That said, all of us are hardwired to sleep. Some of us lose the capacity to do so. Within the chronic pain population or the high stress population, restful sleep can be a bit of a unicorn. In these cases, insomnia can often be rebranded as pain insomnia, as it represents the vicious cycle of pain and chronic fatigue that comes with insomnia. It's adding a little bit of insult to injury to have sleep, which is typically a blissful and restorative human activity, to be interrupted incessantly by pain or consequently by adrenaline dumps. The irony of being tired to the bone but unable to achieve restful sleep is not lost on anyone who experiences any degree of insomnia. Although getting to the root of it can be challenging due to the countless variables that can influence it, I found that there are natural solutions that can ease the process and where we can retrain our bodies to find sleep again over time. Personally, I've suffered from insomnia for a very long time (laughs) to varying degrees vivid dreams, nightmares, rushes of nighttime adrenaline. So it's kind of where you wake up with your heart rate through the roof and um, pain, muscle cramps, subluxations. So when joints uh, slip out of place, that causes a lot of wakefulness and uh, discomfort to say the least. And other unexplained wakefulness with rat wheel brain being one of them. Those have all been scattered throughout my life from my teens all the way into my 30s to varying degrees. As I became worse at sleeping through my adult life, uh, it seemed that I became a little bit better at being stubborn and somehow finding a way to cope. But this led to a sort of fatigued coping mode, which would ultimately lead to burnout and then to this feeling of survival mode where I just felt raw every day. And then a total crash. Um, I had one practitioner tell me from one crash, I asked, okay, well, when can I get back at things? And uh, when will the recovery be? Expecting like a week (laughs) of rest. And he said, it could be six months to a year. And I remember thinking, I don't have time for that. (laughs) Uh, That was in my early 20s. So although I was aware that this was not how my most of my peers operated, I was just living my reality, trying to keep pace with life, the demands of work that I had taken on voluntarily, obviously. And then I had just accepted that perhaps this is how things were with my body and I made peace with it as best I could. In the article, I go through a little bit more about what brought me to a full stop with regards to health and life. And this is a point in my life, a three to four year period where the insomnia and the pain and the injuries got significantly worse. So with that, I ultimately had to put a full stop to the pace at which I had lived life for quite some time. At that stage, I thought I would finally find sleep and that sleep would come easily because I had pressed pause on just about everything I cared about and had tried to reduce all external stress. The irony was that I couldn't sleep. (laughs) 
part of that was mechanical because of an injury I was dealing with at the time. But then the rest of it was because my nervous system and my sense of self were so used to running a mile a minute that I quite honestly had no idea what to do with going slow. So I didn't know how to sleep. My body had learned very effectively over the years that it essentially waited for a crash to sleep. And I find a lot of our clients go through this cycle and the crashes, most people can connect with the crashes happening on holidays. It's like they get sick all of a sudden. And they get two days off and they come down with a head cold or they spend those two days in bed with the flu or they just feel completely ragged because they've pushed, pushed, pushed and ignored sleep or just been unable to achieve sleep. And ultimately the crash can show up in different ways with all of us. At the end of the day, not enough attention, in my opinion, is brought to what we do during the day. We wait until nighttime to address the elephant in the room of sleep. There are a lot of resources out there that speak to sleep hygiene. So setting a dark environment. We've written an article about that as well. Your guide to better sleep. They talk about the temperature in the room. When you eat might be mentioned as well. And reducing blue light stimulus. Those are all true. They are all accurate. But if we don't draw attention to the daytime pace at which you live your life or the daytime habits that you have with your body with your brain then getting to sleep no matter how peaceful you've made your bedroom may still not happen so the intention of this article is to draw attention to all those other x factors that carry very big long-term effect in the hope that you can regain sleep I will admit I'm not perfect. I still have weeks where I flare and, you know, I get some subluxations that keep me up at two in the morning. But overall, I've spent the last year and a bit retraining myself to sleep by drawing attention to daily things. And this article and this podcast are aimed to address that. And I just want to make one short little statement. We have EDS in the title of this article. I just want to make it very, very clear that this article and the recommendations therein are not just for the EDS population. EDS, which is the genetic collagen disorder that Freya has, just just means that she has a very, very sensitive system. So she's a canary in a coal mine, and anybody with EDS is going to experience symptoms and a backlash from certain environmental factors quicker than somebody like myself who has a quote-unquote normal physiology who named quote unquote (laughs) (laughs) so without further ado let's just dive right into some of the points of this article so the first one for it is to get outside and seek daylight yes so whether you have slept well or slept poorly being outside allowing your skin to see the sun even if it's winter time or a cloudy day has very huge anti-inflammatory effects We know that vitamin D is a catalyst in building or maintaining good bone density. But not only that, it can help us lower blood pressure, cardiovascular risks, and of course being outside elevates our mood. If we are inside, our bodies don't get those signals. So our circadian clock ends up being affected. No matter whether you've spent the whole night up or you're dog tired and you have a full day of work ahead of you, Just being sure to get outside at some stage in the morning hours to expose yourself to sunlight, no matter how filtered it is through the clouds, will help your body function. And this goes for summertime. This goes for wintertime. This is even for Canadians in the winter when it's negative 30 out. If you get outside and you put your face under the sky, that actually really does help you being able to sleep at night because it regulates that cycle of light and dark and of wakefulness and sleepiness. I'm sure a lot of people out there have maybe had a day where they were out late the night before and they maybe slept in a little bit and then they spent the entire day inside just kind of lazing around. I know I used to do this quite a bit in my university years. And then at nighttime, I was totally restless even though I hadn't done anything and I was totally tired all day, but I just couldn't sleep at night. And that brings us to our second point, which is to move your body. The irony of being really tired is that we have lower motivation to do anything. I understand this well. You can feel plastered to the floor, the couch, the bed with fatigue, and and also possibly discomfort if you are dealing with an injury right now or part of the chronic pain population. But changing your stimulus, getting some blood flow, and doing this outside as a bonus can release energy, it can release tension, it can 
improve digestion. It does improve heart rate. It prevents deconditioning, which is a really risky thing in the EDS population. And it can help us manage our mental state. So your stress, your emotions, all of the things that could potentially keep you up at night. The right dose of movement is very individual. So it might mean that you start with 10 minute walk in the morning to be outside in the sunlight, or you might be someone who enjoys going to the gym or you go for a swim. It doesn't matter what your dose is. It has to be personal to you, but it has to be there daily. Yeah. Humans are meant to move. Um, we're bipeds. We're meant to walk. So with point one being get outside and point two being move, just getting up, going for a quick walk, whether that's during the morning, you know, over the lunch hour, that in itself can have a huge impact on whether or not you can sleep at night. We've had a few clients that had sleep issues lately, and we asked them to incorporate a little walk after dinner. And now those walks, they swear by them. They know if they don't get those walks in that they're not going to sleep well. So getting outside and walking are just two things that can go hand in hand and uh, will have a huge impact on your sleep. The third thing we'd like to discuss is to reduce your daytime breathing rate. So Freya, can you speak to this a little bit more? Breathing has become a little bit more, I guess, popular, which yeah. is ironic given that we all breathe. We all do it. It's very yeah. popular. Yeah. One of my older clients once said he was in his 80s. He said, I'm still breathing, so it's a good day, which couldn't be more true. We take for granted that we just breathe whether we think about it or not. But if you bring attention to it and you start being aware of changes in your breathing, you can better change all your other vital signs. You can also prepare yourself for sleep by paying attention to how you're breathing throughout the day. So if you're incredibly stressed all day, chances are very high that you are defaulting to a faster breathing rate. This is a totally normal bodily response because when we are stressed, our breathing rate goes up, our heart rate goes up because the brake on our heart rate is off. So that's a vagal brake goes off and um, it's preparing us to do more. So if you have a race, that's a great example. You would start to feel an adrenaline surge. Your heart rate goes up. Your breathing rate goes up. Your body is preparing yourself to go accomplish a task. Now, normally that's followed up by racing, <laughs> which is helpful because you get rid of that sympathetic energy. And then after that, you can calm down. When that stress response is chronically occurring and you're stapled to your desk or you're inside, your body's not pairing that with an output of that sympathetic energy. Not only that, you may feel more physical tension because again, your body's in that prep mode. We're not saying that this is a bad reflex. It's just a bad reflex to stay stuck in all day. So by the time you get to evening wind down, you may have been so riled up all day. And if you had no physical output for that, then you've been in a slight chronic state of fight or flight all day. And what your body does not want to do is go into that parasympathetic state that we associate with sleep because it has all this sympathetic energy, this fight or flight energy bottled up. Not only that, we're actively training our body no matter what we do. So if you are breathing at a high rate, say over 14 breaths per minute, or your mouth breathing, which happens when we talk, obviously, we can't help that. You don't need to talk through your nose. But when you're breathing through your mouth all day or with a high breathing rate all day, you're actually training your body to get used to that. So what it means for your internal environment, one of the byproducts of your muscles working is CO2, so carbon dioxide buildup. If you're chronically mouth breathing, you are chronically expelling that, which may sound like a great thing. But what it also means is your brain gets used to a very low level of it within your system. So as soon as you close your mouth to then try and go to sleep, if you wake up a matter of minutes later, or you're waking up with a really dry mouth, or worse yet, I used to wake up with my tongue split open, that was lovely, uh, and embarrassing to admit that, but it is a fact. Those are all signs that you are likely over-breathing during the day. So once you've closed your mouth and carbon dioxide starts to build within your system, your brain is not used to that. It's going to sound the alarm, and so it starts to ramp up adrenaline, heart rate, you default to mouth breathing, and you may experience vivid nightmares, you may uh, wake up with a start, or you'll wake up with a really dry mouth. Those are all signs that during the day, your breathing pattern may be off. This one's really interesting to me because 
Again, breathing is something, like you said before, we do automatically all day long. And how could that possibly impact my sleep? But it is, from what I've seen amongst our clients, the biggest, I would say the biggest thing that contributes to sleep dysfunction is people who are breathing through the mouth too much during the day. And that's causing them to have disrupted sleep patterns, waking up in their sleep and causing overall fatigue. And it just repeats that cycle over and over. So it's actually turning all of your attention to what you're doing throughout the day. And it makes sleeping at night just far, far easier. I know we had Leo Ryan on the podcast a few weeks ago, and he spoke to the importance of nasal breathing as well. So we could uh, link that podcast back into this as well. But breathing during the day, nasal breathing is critical for anybody who's waking up in the night. Yeah, and if you have a career where you have to speak all day, it's not the end of the world. It's more, again, we're, we're just trying to bring attention to what can happen. If this, then that. So if you are breathing through your mouth all day and you're running around and you tend to notice you have a very high breathing rate, it's just important to know that that will influence your sleep quality or uh, lack thereof. Within the pain population and the EDS population specifically, recovery is really crucial. Not to say that everyone else doesn't need to recover, but we're, we're dealing with more frequent injuries. And so leveraging this daily waking life habit also helps improve pain. If you lower your breathing rate, this can help you manage your pain response. When we're in pain, we tend to immediately quicken it. But again, if you bring in conscious control of that, you can help lower your breathing rate. So we're talking about anywhere from five to 10 breaths per minute, depending on where you're starting from, that can have a very positive effect. And by lowering it as low as you can, by extending your exhale, you manage your pain response. The bonus is that you also get to sleep at night if you're bringing attention to it more frequently. We don't need you to obsess about it all day. You do just need to notice the changes that happen throughout your day specifically, and then go from there. The fourth point in the article is to check your water and caffeine intake. So this is something that we always chat to clients about. If you're getting all your water through food alone and you're not drinking much water at all, this can be a massive problem. There's a lot of myths out there about how much water we need to drink that you have to have eight cups a day or you know, however many ounces or liters, but it's all very, very individualized. If you're drinking to thirst and you are drinking water throughout the day, you're probably in pretty good shape. So water is a really, really big one. And then caffeine, of course, is really important when it comes to sleep because we live in a, in a society now where caffeine has been just completely normalized. It is a drug. <laughs> and, and don't think this is us saying don't drink any caffeine. And Frey and I both enjoy our morning coffee. But drinking too much caffeine will impact your sleep. Everyone is genetically a little different when it comes to how quickly they do metabolize caffeine. And some people use that fact to say, oh, no, I'm a fast metabolizer. I can have coffee until 6 p.m. and still sleep fine. I used to be one of those people. And as soon as I stopped doing that, guess what? I started sleeping a lot better when I put my caffeine only into the morning and cut down from an entire French press to myself to just one cup made a massive improvement to not only my sleep, my digestion, and a lot of other things. So in general, avoiding all caffeine in the afternoon is something we recommend to absolutely everyone. And Freya, what is your take on all this? Well, generally speaking, I do say if you're not sleeping well at night and you feel exhausted, that's actually the perfect time to not have caffeine. The irony is that's when most of us reach for more of it. And uh, we've had this discussion with uh, Dr. Sharon Kelly as well, that if coffee is part of your ritual and it's your soul food uh, or one of and you really enjoy the whole process of it, we're not gonna tell you to just take that all away. Just enjoy your morning one and have it before 9 a.m. and really enjoy it, but then cut it off. And if you just want the warmth and the flavor, try decaf. But again, I would limit that to before noon um, because a lot of this is about retraining your system. With clients, I've coached them for ages, I say the days that you feel like you quote unquote need coffee are the days that you absolutely hands down do not and I understand I've been there 
um, I had many months with one of my most recent injuries where I was having another one at noon and I knew it was the worst thing for me and was dealing with a few too many other things that I knew I needed to take it out, but it can take a while. So I set up firm date for me to take that one out and only stick to the morning one and it has huge benefits we will also cycle um decaf in which i know has just made some people cringe but when you buy very good quality coffee beans they actually taste delicious and it's a great natural thing to make sure that you're not becoming dependent on it but if you're part of the sleepless population or the poor quality sleep population there are unfortunately no great exceptions to cutting it off after mid-morning at the end of the day i think one of the really big take-homes from this podcast and this article is that your body is going to become whatever you train it to do so if you are having caffeine every afternoon to get through the afternoon you're going to need caffeine every afternoon to get through the afternoon and so it's I'm going to change need to crave. <laughs> well, exactly. But it's the same thing. If you're over breathing every day, you're training your body to freak out and need that during the night. So it's going to wake up. So you, everything you do during the day, whether it's food, caffeine, water, breathing, is training your body for a type of response during your sleep. So just remember, if you want the sleep outcome to change, it's about changing how you train your body during the day regarding all these things. Another one of those things, which is a point five in the article, is to eat dinner early, really early. Now, part of the reason this point is in here is because if you think of your GI tract as having digestion as its primary task and understand that it is very different than your sleep mode in your body, it's easy to understand that if your GI tract is still dealing with a big task, then sleep mode is compromised. While we sleep, there are certain repair mechanisms that only happen while we sleep. So we're going back to that whole circadian rhythm. If we keep the bodily task of digestion very close, and that's like one to two hours to where we are planning on sleeping, we don't necessarily get that recovery. And we certainly don't get a deep sleep mode because we're too busy. Our internal factory is still going, so to speak. With EDSers, this is even more important. Most people with EDS have some level of GI tract issues. They're very highly correlated. If you don't, that's fantastic. But a large portion of that population has issues related to motility, so slowness, either in upper GI or low G lower GI. Um, allergies, which can result in bloating or hives or mast cell response. Permeability, which can also result in those functional dyspepsia, or IBS. All of those things will keep you from sleeping. So if we move the bodily task of eating far earlier than the other bodily task of sleeping, we get better quality sleep, no matter what kind of human we are, and we also get better recovery of our gastrointestinal system. Many people have habituated themselves to going to bed somewhat full. Some of this is because of the work hours that we have, the socializing that we may have, or we've just built the habit of having dinner at 8 or 9 p.m. And I know in some cultures that's the way it's done. It's important to look at trying to move dinner earlier and seeing how your body responds. If you've been having a late dinner um, for years, you may think that this isn't a factor that influences you at all. It will influence all of us at some stage because digestion just doesn't happen that quickly. So if you're eating an hour before bed, you are not done digesting. It's worth trying it on for size by moving dinner gradually earlier. What this does mean is sometimes, like Dana and I will eat dinner together 90% of the week. But the couple of nights a week where he has a later client or a later call... I'll go and eat earlier. <laughs> it's not that I don't care about him, but we've realized just how, how much that impacts both of our sleep patterns. So we used to eat dinner roughly at 7 p.m. We moved it to 6, and we found our sweet spot is actually around 5 p.m. Every now and again, it'll sneak in there at 4.30 because we're both hungry, and uh, we're both ready to have our last meal of the day. It is technically a form of intermittent fasting, which has become relatively popular, but we're not sticking to this for the purpose of of finding an 18-hour gap overnight, we're really trying to separate the bodily task of digestion, which is a harder one in the EDS population anyway, to the bodily task of sleeping. This helps lower inflammation, we encourage GI recovery time, and we promote higher sleep quality. 
Yeah. So the type of framework you can put around this is that the earlier you wake up in the morning, especially the earlier you start eating in the morning, the earlier you should be having dinner in the evening because it becomes harder and harder throughout the day for your body to continue to produce digestive enzymes. Now, if you wake up a little bit later, if you have breakfast a little bit later, then you're going to be a little bit better able to produce these enzymes towards the end of the day. And you can get away with having dinner a little bit later. For example, if you go to bed at midnight, maybe having dinner at 8 p.m., totally fine for you because you have a nice gap between eating and going to bed. But it's really important that you do keep that break at the end of the day to allow for digestion before you go to sleep. And that actually brings us into what you're consuming. So our sixth point was eating well and considering magnesium. Now, when it comes to GI issues within the EDS population that we mentioned previously, what you eat will exacerbate these or it will help heal them or manage them might be a better term there. There's no optimal intake for anybody, but there are foods that are more inflammatory. There are foods that your body in particular may react more to, and the closer you have them to bedtime or the more frequently you have them overall, the more you'll have trouble sleeping or recovering. So what this means is foods high in sugar, for example, or if you are eating a lot of legumes that can prove problematic because you get more bloat, more digestion and I can tell that Dane has a little input here (laughs) too many beans is no good for my gut yep no that's that's what we call gutter butt at the end of the day your microbiome so what you modulate with food intake and with exercise can in turn modulate pain sensation if you're part of the population that is currently experiencing pain or recovery from injury it's definitely in your best interest to tune into the choices around food that minimize inflammatory foods so that you can get adequate sleep exercise and recovery all of them regulate your biome For this reason, we encourage all clients, whether you're injured, you're not, you have a lot of insomnia or just poor sleep quality, to emphasize whole food sources. That should be the staple of your intake. Foods low in sugar are always going to be of benefit. This does include fruit. Having really high sugar fruits frequently can actually cause a lot of bloat. And in addition to this, we just encourage people to tune into what allows them to thrive. If you notice that a certain type of food like dairy is constantly making you gassy and you're feeling that at night, then it's worth its removal. Or maybe be very selective about its use if it's something that you truly love. In addition to this, we do mention that it can be of benefit to supplement with magnesium. Magnesium is involved in over 300 bodily functions from energy production to sleep and many people with GI distress are at high risk for magnesium depletion. Typically we don't encourage people to supplement but in this case it could be worth consulting with your practitioner to see if that's something to add in because we typically don't get enough of it via dietary sources. The one little add-in to to say there with magnesium is you want to look for a quality supplement. Um, So look on the ingredients list of any magnesium supplement out there. Try and avoid any supplements with the main ingredient of magnesium oxide, which is very poorly absorbed, and even magnesium citrate because that is basically a natural laxative and taking too much of that will make you do a lot of the poop. So look for a magnesium glycinate or magnesium bisglycinate supplement because that is the most bioavailable and the body will absorb it the best. Which takes us into point seven, which is to ditch screens and use airplane mode. And I know a lot of people have already heard this message saying don't look at screens before bed because of the blue light and use airplane mode because you don't want the Wi-Fi signal going through your brain throughout the night. Um, But Freya, can you elaborate a little bit more on the actual points we were really trying to make in this article? Yeah, so we actually weren't talking about the blue light, although that is obviously relevant. Um, We're discussing instead the addiction property we have with phones and the constant content drip. So yes, we know that blue light can be problematic, but we also know that you can get a lot of blue light blockers and that will not take away these other two pieces that are problematic especially when you bring technology into the bedroom so the first of which is the addiction side whether you're looking at videos or at photos it's very easy to get kind of hooked in you get a little dopamine boost when you do but then on the flip side you can get some negative content as well so perhaps you see a stressful work email right before you're supposed to go to sleep it doesn't matter if you had blue light blockers 
you're still going to get a negative uh, sympathetic response to something like a fight or flight response to a very stressful stimulus. So whether it was a really angry email that came your way or whether it was a really depressing news article, the content provided by these phones is both addictive and very high stimulus. You're giving your brain a lot of content to start filtering through. This is kind of like giving your toddler sugar and their favorite toy right before you want them to actually wind down for sleep. It's not helpful. We have inner toddlers. That's our limbic system (laughs) that guides us to sleep. And if we're constantly interjecting with more content and more stuff to absorb and more things that boost our dopamine a little bit by giving us that little hit of satisfaction from social media or whatever it is, then we're doing the exact opposite with our system than we need to do in order to achieve sleep. So our advice is always to ditch screens, phones, tablets, or TV at least two hours before bed. If you're bringing those into bed right now, start with half an hour. Slowly work your way back. I would say this is the one thing where we say that you should implement a hard and fast rule, i.e. it does not come into your bedroom whatsoever. Because there are other things like say coffee, where you might be able to wean yourself. If you're having three cups, you might say start by going 2.5, then go down to two cups. And we're trying to do that partially for what you enjoyed as a habit, but also to prevent the headache. For this kind of thing, it's because they're so addictive, it's better to just cut it off. Don't allow it into the bedroom. Cut it off at a set hour every single night and stick to it with no exception. Because setting a specific time allows you to just not have to battle with that dwindling willpower at the end of the day. Last but not least, it can help you choose other habits that might be more enjoyable and that allow yourself to downtune your system. Reading a book, writing, drawing, listening to music, talking to somebody else, as long as there's someone that you like, (laughs) preferably. Uh, Dana and I got very good at puzzles again this winter because it was the key way to stop ourselves from working too late into the evening in a way that would disrupt our sleep. And this takes us into number eight, which is weighted blankets, bolsters, and pillows. Oh my. So I love this section. The things in here genuinely one by one helped your sleep improve bit by bit. The thing I love about this is these are all pieces that can improve your actual bedtime environment. And this is outside of temperature and outside of it being dark. Those are obviously important. But when we consider the effect of pillows, bolsters, and weighted blankets on our nervous system, we can help our nervous system make it through those more wakeful periods. Now, the first thing is an eye mask. I used an eye mask for about 15 years and tried various ones to make sure that they didn't press on my eyeballs, my eyelashes, caused too much pressure around my head, and eventually found one that I thought was great until I was gifted a new one in December called a Knighthood. Now, we don't have any monetary bias here because we're not affiliated with the company, but the Knighthood's doing something unique in that it's a little chapeau, a hat with a tassel on top, which may sound very 1940s-ish. Very, very sexy. (laughs) And it's made of bamboo and it pulls over your eyes, but it doesn't have any sort of acute pressure point that an eye mask inherently does and because it's bamboo it's cool I had no idea that this would make such a huge difference given that I was already using a night mask and I can feel confident recommending this now that I know a number of other people who've had the same sort of success it's cooling because it's bamboo so even though it's a full-on hat it will not compress uh, your head or heat you up On that note, the other key thing that's also made of bamboo is a weighted blanket. So the one that I have is a Nirvana weighted blanket. There are slats within it that can be pulled out to heat or cool, or you can reduce the weight or change the weight by removing or adding them. And that's just one company. Again, we don't have a monetary bias there, and there are so many of them available now because people are catching on to this, I guess you would consider it a trend now. But what weighted blankets do is they are calming to the nervous system. So where an infant might benefit from being swaddled, an adult might benefit from having a little bit of weight, but that is not heating them up. So it's very different than a heavy duvet, which is intended to add weight and then heat you up. This is there as a gentle pressure on your system. So if you have chronically tight muscles that prevent you from sleeping well, it can actually 
serve as a calming stimulus to help you relax them. And I think no matter the brand of weighted blanket, it's paramount that it is made from bamboo or some sort of breathable fabric that will not overheat you at night. Yeah. Now, most companies have suggested weights based on your size and as such, they won't pose risk to your structure by crushing you. They are not overly heavy, but they are enough stimulus to create that relaxation response. I've had multiple clients try various brands and all of them have referenced how they wake in the night but are comforted enough to fall back asleep, whereas previously that would have been a wake up that would keep them up for the rest of the night. Finally, pillows. Freya got me onto the Casper pillow. Again, we're not trying to push a certain brand, but what we say is that finding a pillow that accommodates multiple comfortable positions for your neck and shoulder is super duper important. And a Casper pillow does that. I can sleep on my back, I can sleep on my side, and the pillow actually totally conforms to whichever position I'm in so that when I wake up, I'm not strained in any given position. And for a hypermobile person, that's even more important. One of the things that I've always worked on is finding a pillow that won't warp easily with time. If you have a very sensitive neck or sensitive shoulders or you have subluxations that occur, having a pillow that doesn't force your neck or shoulders into a specific position is really important. Further to that, having a pillow that allows you to move through positions without forcing you to wake up and like readjust everything is also equally important. If you're waking up and you're having a really hard time turning your head and neck, it's probably worth investing in trying different pillows and they don't have to be overly expensive. If you find one that suits you and it's $18, it really doesn't matter. It's not about buying the most expensive one out there. It's one that allows your head and shoulders to adopt multiple positions and move through them easily. This became even more apparent when I suffered from my um, neck injury and what had been sensitive before with regards to pillows became even more so. So we found success with Casper because it doesn't uh, warp easily over time as well. And I'd be remiss not to mention bolsters. If you have SI problems, low back pain, low back injury, or hip tension, it's worth bringing an extra pillow or a bolster and placing it by your hips or abdomen so you can lean forward slightly into it or place it behind your low back so you can lean slightly back. This will offset the load on your hip. It will allow you to relax into a supportive structure so that you're no longer having to hold a lot of tension through your abdomen and hips. I found this incredibly helpful when I started using that years ago for managing a low back injury. I don't use it regularly now because I'm no longer in that stage, but I've implemented that with clients successfully. It will help you relax and restore at night. The other bolster piece is using anything to support your upper arm or your chest. So we happen to have a little giraffe stuffy in our place that was part of a joke. And then ultimately it turned out to be the perfect size to support my sternum while going through my spine injury. So be creative. It may feel silly, but if it can allow you to adopt a comfortable sleeping position, if you have a shoulder injury right now, prop that top arm up, prop your chest up so you have something to lean into. It may not be a forever thing, or you might like it so much that even when your injury has, has subsided or your pain is gone, you still prefer using that. There are no rules. You just do what helps you sleep, <laughs> even if it is a stuffed animal. Now going hey, point- my niece thinks I'm cool, so it's all good. <laughs> That's very true. Now, going into point number nine here is emotions and language. Now, I'll let Freya elaborate more on this, but I will just say if you're going into sleep with the preconceived notion that you're a bad sleeper and that sleep is going to be hard and that you're going into a fight, then yes, it's always going to be that way. So Freya, can you kind of just elaborate a little bit more on that? Well, I'll start off by saying I'm not a psychologist and I'm not a certified uh, cognitive behavioral therapist, but I can attest to the importance of tuning into the emotions that surround your sleep experience. When you get angry, anxious, or frustrated at night, you know it's unproductive. It can create its own vicious cycle to heighten tension at night, and then the next day is even worse because of it. Now, Learning to find some sort of peace, how you manage that is personal, and build daytime strategies 
can bring back a sense of control and calm throughout the experience. That's the first step. So even if you wake at night, you've at least kind of found a place to make peace. And if you cannot keep your anger or frustration low, then get out of the bedroom, go somewhere else, do something else as long as it doesn't involve screens. I've made that mistake. So take it from me (laughs) and go back to bed once you are feeling calmer. One of the other important things we focus on is um, as frustrating as it can be, don't start describing it as who you are. Even if you have a decade's worth of evidence that you are not great at sleep, for example, I wouldn't start describing yourself as a bad sleeper or, oh, I suck at sleep or I can't sleep. None of those are terribly productive. And if we instead change our filter to looking at what allows us to be successful with sleep, then we can learn a lot from that. We can start building on that. Again, all of us are hardwired to sleep and that inner toddler knows how to sleep, but we all have a different recipe in terms of our daytime strategy to then achieve that. What I would look at is in my personal experience, when I would crash, the crash was always evidence that I eventually figured out how to sleep. So I needed to fi- needed to figure out how do I get there without also crashing in the process? How can I find sleep without preceding it with complete burnout? What I also noticed is on higher output days, there was a tipping point if I worked out or sorry, not necessarily worked out, but if I did too much and I was tired to the bone, but completely unable to sleep, it was just as bad as if I did absolutely nothing and was still all day. There's a fine point where I had enough output and then I'd sleep like a log. And so everybody has their own different tipping points. So it's important that you look for all your silver linings, look for the patterns that did allow you to sleep and then start to emphasize those. But no matter what, having a calm presence at night if you are experiencing wakefulness allows you to be calmer throughout the next day you will not feel as frustrated and you can give it another shot the next night this is something that's built up over time and yeah I just want to hammer home just how important it is not to just self-identify as being a bad sleeper I identify as being a good sleeper but I have some really bad sleeps if I have two bad sleeps in a row I don't start saying I'm going to be now I'm a bad sleeper I remind myself that I'm a good sleeper and I start focusing on things from this list and I make a few little adjustments and then I know I can get right back into that positive sleep cycle. So when you have confidence in your ability to control your sleep via what you do in the day, it puts you in total control of how you feel during the night and that's how you can overcome that cycle. So finally, on to point number 10 here, Freya, engage your senses and embrace practice, which I know is something we mentioned on earlier is training your body for the outcomes you want. Yep, this last note is the most ambiguous sounding of the tools. And we know that in any bodily task, consistency breeds proficiency, whether we're talking about becoming a better tennis player or a better sleeper. If you consciously practice going online at two in the morning, your body becomes better at waking you up at that hour to do that. Our internal environment is also sensitive to all external inputs. What this means is it includes subtleties of what we eat, what we watch, who we speak to, and the thoughts that we have throughout the day. But the good news is that if you build awareness, these are all within our ability to influence, to embrace, or to simply remove. It is every human's job to build mental and physical awareness around what riles us up during the day, what brings us down, and what leads to better sleep. Our bodies are constantly sensing and engaging with the environment and with our thoughts, so it's our job to understand what their language is. From my own experience, I had to create very firm boundaries around when I would do things like take meetings. I understood myself well enough that I could not meet about certain things after 12 p.m. Taking on meetings at three, four, or five simply led to my adrenaline being so high, my brain being firmly rooted into either stress mode or task mode that I would not sleep, which obviously made the next day worse. I learned that if I kept those meetings earlier in the day, I could follow through on all the action items thereafter and I could calm myself enough by evening time in order to sleep. I also had to choose who I'd interact with 
and stopped apologizing for not being as available. I know this sounds ridiculous to some people, but many of us carry a lot of guilt around saying no, even though that no is built off of just trying to take care of ourselves or do the right job. So some of this came through by challenging my own beliefs that I was failing someone else. And I built my own strategy to go into what I call sensory deprivation in the evenings. This involved classical music, reading, writing, light therapy, and no new work requests. Again, we're not working in emergency medicine, so there was no reason for us to be staying up 9, 10, 11 at night trying to take care of things for other people. We're far more efficient after a great night's sleep to do it the next day. I'm not suggesting that you take all of these on. These are just personal examples of what I had to do to slowly regain sleep through building awareness of what sort of things really prevented me from sleep and then figuring out where they should go within my week for greater success for everything. Again, this is also not to suggest that you have to become obsessive, controlling, or live in a bubble. It's more about building your personal awareness, removing the stimuli that don't serve you, and over time, you may change your tolerance. As you build up more sleep or higher sleep quality, you may find that, great, I can handle that little bit of stress in the evening, and I can successfully down-tune my system thereafter. Or maybe you think, no, I need to be firmly cut off by this hour every evening, then I'm successful, then I feel better the next day, and the cycle goes on. We had a few little points that can help with this, because like I said, this sounds like a very ambiguous tool. One of them is just tracking your sleep without tying emotion to the outcome. So you may start to notice a pattern of what leads to the better nights. This is how I realized that meetings at a late hour didn't help me at all, but if I could have them earlier in the day and earlier in the week, then I was absolutely fine and I was far more productive as a result. The same is true with social interactions. If it's a late night and it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and you find yourself gassed for the rest of the week, then maybe you say no to those ones and only take them on on a weekend when you can adequately recover. Saying no has such negative connotations within certain generations, but Some of this is because we think we're trying to keep up to a societal standard. Everyone who knows me knows that I'm totally okay with admitting that I go to bed at 8 p.m. 90% of the time. When you say no to someone else, you get the chance to say yes to you. Again, a lot of this is personal. If you're an extrovert and your cup gets filled by seeing all your friends in the evening, even midweek, then that's absolutely okay. But if you find that you're a little bit more introverted and that sort of thing requires a lot of time to downtune from, so then your bedtime gets pushed even later, then it may be something that you want to remove and stick to the weekends and don't be afraid of saying no. It's not a personal thing. You're not a bad person for taking care of your needs and everyone has a different recipe for success there. So that brings us to the end of the 10 points in the article. Now in keeping in line with the majority of our podcast, Freya, I think we should give a book recommendation. <laughs> a book recommendation. Okay, well... The book we'd recommend reading is Why We Sleep by Dr. Matthew Walker. He has also done podcasts with various hosts in the event that listening is preferable to reading. And then I'm going to say, out of all the things, if I had five minutes with somebody and I was going to give them one recommendation for their sleep, I would actually focus on when they were eating dinner. So a lot of people I know will have busy, busy days and they'll cram in the vast majority of their calories after work, right before bed, watch the phone, go to sleep. That's kind of the pattern that I see with a lot of folks. So my recommendation would be to try to make sure that your last meal of the day is at least two hours before you go down for sleep. That had a massive impact, not just for Frey and her system, but for me and my system. And I always thought I was super robust and I would eat a ton of calories right at the end of the day. But when I moved that dinner up, it dramatically improved the uh, my ability to recover from, well, from my heavy workouts and from anything else. And so Freya, I know that you wrote this article with all the 10 points, but if there was one thing you could speak to somebody about in regards to their sleep to help make a massive impact, what one thing would you start with? Moving and breathing. 
So I, I cheated and I snuck two in there. And the reason I'm doing that is because within the chronic pain population that I get to work with, I see so many people who are, yes, uncomfortable and sleep deprived and will rest throughout the day. And while recovery and rest are necessary, you have to move in order to then sleep. That's how our bodies are hardwired. It does not have to be intense. Um, It might just be a walk. Through my spine injury, I was really, really limited. But when I could do two things, I did those two things. And some of that brings mental peace. And some of that gives you a little bit of physical output so that you can then sleep at night. The second piece that I snuck in there was breathing. And um, this is with the understanding that high breathing rates, when we ignore them throughout the day and we don't give ourselves little check-in points like our meal time or if pain flares or if we're in a stressful situation, then we're just practicing a high breathing rate pattern, which ultimately keeps us up at night. And it doesn't mean that it's something that you fix once we get varying stimuli as human beings which is fantastic it's just our job to notice when the changes happen and if we start to retrain ourselves during the day then better things can start to happen at night couldn't have said it better myself for now oh good thanks so that brings us to the end of the podcast on fighting insomnia so freya did you want to just give a quick wrap up Yep. Our uh, final two cents is that remember sleep is hardwired into our system and in the long run, getting sleep will outperform any drug or supplement. When insomnia has become chronic, it will definitely take practice and patience to restore our natural rhythms. Honing in on the daily basics helps you gain greater success in sleep and recovery than just waiting for it to happen at night troubleshooting remaining curious and applying changes is not always straightforward but it is always worth the effort embracing the belief that the story can change is the best place to start well that's it for this episode of the move daily health podcast we will catch you next time folks we hope you enjoyed our conversation to hear more head on over to stitcher or itunes and subscribe to the move daily health podcast and don't hesitate to leave us a review thanks for listening